Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. We are going down the archaeology route today because I know all of you guys love a bit of archaeology. We have Amanda Charland with us, who is an archaeologist who lectures and is a qualified tour guide, and she specializes in the Crusader era. So we haven't had anything from the Crusader era, so we're really excited about this. Welcome, Amanda. Oh, thank you so much. So good to be here. But listen, we're here to talk about a bit of Crusader archaeology. So can you give us all a bit of a background overview about who the Crusaders were and what they were doing in modern day Israel? Yeah, sure. So, um, so the Crusades are basically... The word crusades is just this broad term that we use for a, uh, a bunch of religious and politically motivated wars, generally in the medieval period, uh, starting from about 1095 going to 1291. Now that's the very popular Holy Land Wars. So that's where you see uh, the crusaders' involvement in modern day Israel. And the crusaders themselves, I mean, it's a very sort of umbrella term for people who are European and of Christian religion. Uh, and you essentially have crusaders going to, oh, it depends on which crusade, of course, but sometimes you have Christians fighting um, Muslims. So you have Fatimids, you have Ayyubids, um, you have Mamluks, but also you have uh, later crusaders where you have Christians fighting Christians. So it's... Uh, it's a whole it's a whole bit of a mess, as it were, for several hundreds of years. It sounds like everybody just fighting everybody just for the fun of it. I mean, it was the Middle Ages. I mean, it was. Um, I feel like it's sort of, uh, you know, uh, they'll sort of tell the army one thing, like, "Oh, we're going to get Jerusalem," and it's like, "Okay, great." Except then you have like you know the the leaders of the army going, "Well, you can't actually just go get Jerusalem." It's it's there's a lot of politics involved and. In the end, religion plays a role in it, but it's uh, oh, there's 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 so many politics at play. Do you know what? I think we're going to have to do another podcast so we can talk about all the politics and all the drama that goes on. But we're actually going to be talking about something quite specific today, uh, which is the city of Ascalon. So, can you tell us about the history of this ancient city, and more importantly, where is it? Okay, so the city of Ashkelon uh, is located on the eastern Mediterranean coast, and it's about 63 kilometers south of the city of Jaffa, which is near modern Tel Aviv, and it's about 16 kilometers north of the Gaza Strip. 
So you can go there. It's currently a national park and it is a fabulous place for a picnic along the beach. Uh, I would make jokes that when people ask me, where did you pick your case studies and why for your doctoral research? I just said, well, it needed a beach for lunchtime. And why, why, you know, is there really a better place than, you know, just hanging out on the Mediterranean? <laughs> Do you know what? That is actually incredibly smart. Like really smart. Cause I was, I've been, I was in Israel last year and uh, funny enough uh, now this time last year, I was in Israel and yes, I can tell you. And for those who haven't been, Oh my God, it is beautiful, gorgeous beach, beautiful weather. Do it. But more importantly, tell us about the history. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, the, the actual city itself is this, how do I explain it? It's like a, like a bow and arrow, but like, like the bow where you basically have this earthwork and it dates to the middle bronze age two period. And it's essentially like a tell where you have a city built on top of city, built on top of city. So uh, the initial one, well, I mean, the initial, uh, it's, uh, I mean, they, they've been digging the site for decades. Um, so essentially you have the Franks set out on crusade in 1095 and they arrive in modern day Israel in the spring of 1099. And at that point, I mean, the city, it's an ancient Philistine city and it's being ruled over by the Fatimid Caliphate of Egypt. Um, and they've actually ruled the city by this point, by from the 10th century. Um, and essentially you have the city, it's under Fatimid rule and it's under Fatimid rule until the Frankish siege of 1153. And in 1153, you have the Franks, and the Franks are another term for crusaders, again, being European Christians. And the Franks come in and they rule the city for 34 years. Do they make any changes in the city? So uh, that's, well, that's, a little, that's a little bit of a difficult one to tell. Uh, archaeologically, we do have some carbon dating from some organic material that's found in the mortar in the city walls. And uh, that is Professor Dennis Pringle's work. So I recommend looking up his work. Um, and essentially it gives a fairly uh, late date in the sense of it gives sort of like a late Roman, Byzantine, so early-ish medieval date, which very likely is Fatimid in date. So the wall fragments that you see there now, the ruins are very likely the Fatimid walls. But when the Franks come, we do have lots of very good chronicle evidence for rebuildings and demolitions and rebuildings again, and then another demolition and another demolition and possibly another demolition. There's a lot of sort of breaking in down. The problem with uh, ruined walls is that the top of the walls aren't really there anymore. So the sort of base of the walls, that's where the carbon dating samples are coming from. Uh, so very likely when the Franks came, uh, they probably did some patchwork, probably rebuilt some sections. Um, we do have much later in the 13th century, I'm, I'm going completely off track here, but in the 13th century, uh, you have a fair amount of rebuilding where you have a letter from Richard of Cornwall talking about this uh, double-walled castle that he's built, of which nothing remains. Um, well, I say nothing. There is a flat platform that let's just say looks intriguing. <laughs> and let's just say I wouldn't mind digging up that platform, putting a little, a few trenches in. Um, but otherwise, you know, so we have this chronicle, these chronicles, these letters talking about 
lots of buildings and demolitions, but it's not necessarily what the evidence is telling us in the archaeological record. So it's difficult to kind of understand both of them, as it were. I love archaeology because, you know, you've got all these written sources for certain things and then along comes archaeology and just completely screws it up. Oh, completely. We love doing that. <laughs> it's, our it's, like, it's like, you know, you, you're, you're this great historian. You found all this evidence and it's amazing. It's awesome. Yes, we have found this, I don't know, passage that says X, Y and Z and it's revolutionary. And along comes an archaeologist and they go, well, that's not what the archaeology is telling us. And you're like, great. Thank you. I like, to, I like to think of it as it's not what the archaeology is telling us yet. It might. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. So we've been talking that you said there was rebuilding and, and all sorts of things going on. So let's talk about the destruction of the city uh, mm. from the 12th to the 15th of September, uh, 1191. What actually yeah. happened? And does the archaeology actually match up? Here we go. This is a good one. Does the archaeology match up with the written sources? <laughs> no, no. So what happens after the uh, after the Franks have the city? So essentially, the Fatimids have the city of Ashkelon. The Franks have it in 1153, and it remains in Frankish hands until 1187. And for those who are big Crusader fans, you'll understand that 1187, the Battle of Hattin, Saladin, um, and so. On September 5th, 1187, this is when Saladin retakes the city of Ashkelon. And you have this intense two-week siege. And uh, so basically you've got Saladin, you have the Ayyubids, you have lots of different people living in the city. Um, so here's one possibility where they've rebuilt. It's one of those things, again, with the historic record where they sort of say there was a two-week siege. And you're like, could you go into exact detail with a map and show me what the result of that two-week siege was? Was it, you know, did you break down some walls? Like, what happened? And sometimes they're pretty descriptive, but not always. But essentially what you have is um, you have Saladin in the city, or, you know, who owns, the, who is occupied the city as it were and then you've got let's fast forward a little bit to 1191 and here we're in the third crusade with richard the lionheart or king richard the first of england and there's this siege of acre all right now what happens there there is a massacre of uh, muslim captives and not to go into too much detail but essentially what happens is richard comes in he takes the city he has a bunch of captives and he writes to Saladin to give him terms of surrender and, or sorry, to basically say, I will massacre these people unless certain terms are met. Saladin does not answer. So he massacres the Muslims and he then continues south. All right. Now the important thing to remember or to think of with Ashkelon is that it is of extreme strategic importance. The way that it's located so it's sort of southwest of Jerusalem and it's north of Egypt. And it is on these communication lines. And so Ashkelon is extremely important because you have these communications that will go from Egypt up to Jerusalem. So you'll get uh, provisions sent and information being passed. So in order to control Jerusalem, in order to have Jerusalem, you need Ashkelon. This is why it's so important. And Sally knows this, and so he decides, okay, uh, I know that Richard the Lionheart, Richard, is coming south. I'm going to destroy Ashkelon to take that out of play. So this is why 
um, from September 12th to 25th, 1191, Saladin decides to have to destroy the walls, to destroy the city. So Saladin, okay, he he has actually he does actually have a love for the city, doesn't he? What do the written sources say? I mean, what do they say about how much he loves this city? We actually have a lot of really, really great um, chronicle, a lot of documentary evidence um, for the Ayyubids. And um, Baha al-Din is one of his chroniclers and he's there. And so he's actually writing in 1191 and he has this really great passage that he's written. Um, Can you read it to uh, us? Yeah, I'll read it to you for sure. So it says, he passed the night, and by he, we mean Saladin now. Uh, Saladin passed the night anxious about demolition. Excuse me, I'll start again. So he passed the night anxious about demolishing Ashkelon and slept only a little. At dawn, he called me to attend him. When we say he here, he means Bahaldin. So at dawn, he called me to attend him. I arrived and he began a discussion about the town's demolition. He summoned his son, Al-Afdad, oh, excuse me, he summoned his son, Al-Afdal, whom he consulted on this matter while I was in attendance. The discussion lasted a long time. The Sultan said, quote, By God, I would prefer to lose all my sons rather than demolish a single stone of it. Yet if God decrees it and prescribes it as a way of preserving the best interests of the Muslims, what else can I do? End quote. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, it's... Um, uh, I mean, and that's that's always the the question with historical sources. Did he really say these things? Um, and we'll never know ultimately. But what do you uh, think? Oh, <laughs> it's important. Um, we want to know. We want to know what you think. <laughs> yes. Mm. Um, I mean, given given that Bahaldin is present uh, and he is writing from the time. I mean, it's. I mean, he's writing from a a. a the uh, the entire chronicle is called the life of saladin um so it's most likely written by 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 Haladin. so i think i think there's a goodish good chance that it's uh genuinely genuinely remembered by the author um i mean if anything i like to always say you know are these the actual like word by word uh you know recountings and if anything i like to take away the sort of facts of it which is it would seem that saladin was clearly troubled by his decision no so that makes seeks- sense yeah that makes sense so then he abandons the city i mean it's partially demolished because richard uh, richard the lionheart richard the Fed, first sorry is approaching with his army he yeah. does something before he abandons the city what does he do it's actually interesting because we do have another uh, historic source but this time it's from one of his generals <laughs> Essentially, you have uh, other other chronicles talking about how the actual people themselves are just devastated that they're losing their city. They love their city. They think it's beautiful. Just to give you an idea of how beautiful the city was, how important it was to the people living there, and how uh, fertile and friendly it was, um, we have another um, we have we have another passage by uh, Imad al Din, and. The only translation I could find, because unfortunately for me, I do not speak or read Arabic, but uh, I did find a French chronicle, or excuse me, a French translation. And I luckily do speak French, coming from Canada. Um, <laughs> so I, I translated the passage. So this is, this is my translation. So if it is incorrect, my, my greatest apologies. Um, but there's this wonderful passage and has this beautiful 
uh, imagery and it really conveys the feelings of sadness at seeing this Ashkelon, um, a city which was completely just so loved and Saladin destroys it again for practical political reasons, but just to sort of convey the, what this meant to people. Um, it was then that the Sultan, by the Sultan, Saladin, uh, could find no way to avoid dismantling the ramparts of Ashkelon, the decrease in her brightness, the scattering of her finery, the raising of her buildings, the extinction of her activity. However, if we had taken care to put her in a state since the day she was taken and kept, her strength would not be altered, her hand would not be withered, nor her tip made blunt, and we would not have tired of loving her. Going on horseback, this is one of Saladin's generals, going on horseback around the city, I found her beautiful and elegant. I contemplated her walls before the ruin of her finery and her splendor before when her flower was not wilted. Yet I never saw a city more beautiful and more strong, more stable in situation and more steady. Wow. It's, it's, it's just the, I mean, and obviously there, there will be some elements lost in translation, but I think it's just so beautiful the way they describe the city in such loving terms in these almost like, um, motherly terms they give her a female gender um which is really quite interesting i think um just this uh, this protective this nurturing sort of quality that has been given to the city it's kind of going to make me sad what you're going to say next uh, because the city is beautiful because then something really bad happens yes it does um yeah so it's it it, it is destroyed um I'm trying to see if I had like a quote for the actual destruction of it. Um, Saladin partly destroys and abandons the city in September 12th, 1191. You have is you have Richard the Lionheart and his army moving towards Ashkelon. A lot of his army is quite disheartened by this. A lot of them went on crusade because they wanted to go to Jerusalem. And Richard's like, sorry, hold up. We have to go to Ashkelon first. So that's quite disheartening. Uh, and so here we have January 20th, 1192, they arrive at Ashkelon and they just have this really horrible scene in front of them. Um, so this is from Ambroise's uh, Histoire de la Gare Sainte. And here we have basically, so they came to Ashkelon between midday and nons. They found it so broken, fallen and destroyed that when they climbed over the rubble, entering with such suffering after the hard day that they had endured, there was not one who did not want to desire rest, who did not want and desire rest, sorry. Uh, they were to have it in plenty. So here they are, they can have their rest because they've made quite a difficult journey south. They've had very bad weather and they've had uh, difficult getting their provisions because of the bad weather. Um, but, you know, here they are going to what is not their promised uh, Jerusalem, but they're going to Ashkelon and it's in rubble. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Do you know what? I, you've given me this image in my mind where I'm approaching. Uh, a city that I'm assuming is going to be beautiful because a lot of ancient cities in, in, in Israel are incredibly beautiful, even though they're obviously in ruins now, but you could imagine the beauty and then just approaching the city and it's just partially destroyed. I think my heart would just sink. I, I think it's also one of those things that sometimes people think that because it's on the Mediterranean, it's always warm and it is not. <laughs> so, mm. so on top of everything, they're cold. They've been traveling for a very long time and then they get to this broken city. So it's, it's just a, a punch in the gut, one after another, really. So then Richard I, obviously, he arrives with his army. They arrive. They see this just destroyed, partially destroyed city. What does he do? Richard Lionheart has this very disheartened army, and he has a broken city. So he needs the city to be up and running again, as it were. He needs it to be defensible, but he also needs to raise the morale of his of his army. Uh, waging wars, uh, you need to have people who are in good spirits. You need to have them willing to fight for you. So you need to give them something to do. You need to give them a project. So this is exactly what he does. Uh, he engages everyone in the reconstruction of Ashkelon's walls. The, um, there's a really, really great uh, recounting. Yeah, so as we have Ambroise tell us, um, then they, meaning the army, made ready and prepared to rebuild the walls of the city again. Of course, the city here being Ashkelon. However, the barons who had stayed there since their return were so poor that the poverty of some was well known and apparent, and no one living who knew of it would not have given, would not have great pity for them. Nonetheless, all set to work. They laid the foundation of a gate where everyone worked so that they marveled at the great work they were doing. The good knights, the men-at-arms, and the esquires passed, the stones from hand to hand. Everyone worked at it without respite. Clerics and laymen came, so in a short space of time, they accomplished much. Then afterwards, they sent for masons to do the work that was completed at great cost. When the masons arrived, they, uh, when the masons arrived, they were retained for the work. The king came first with wholehearted efforts, and then the great. Everyone undertook what was appropriate. Uh, where there was no one else, or where the barons did nothing, there the king caused the work to be done to be begun and to be completed. And whenever the barons tired of the work and did not suffice, the king had had some of his goods, resources, meaning uh, carried there and encouraged them. He put so much into this and spent so much on it that for three parts of the city, the cost was met by him. So not only is he organizing this work, he's organizing this rebuilding, he's actually paying for uh, about three quarters of it. Um, because he needs to have it done. Uh, crusades are very expensive, but yes, he's actually paying to have it be rebuilt as well. So you end up actually finding an inscription that, that relates to all of this. Can you tell us about that? What, I mean, what is its relevance? So there's an inscription found. Uh, it was actually part of a collection uh, belonging to Baron von Ustenau, and it's now in the uh, antiquity collection at the Museum of Cultural History at the University of Oslo. And 
Uh, I shall not read it in Latin, just to save everyone from Latin. But I'll oh, please, please don't. <laughs> please give us a translation. <laughs> <laughs> translation. And I mean, it's it's a little patchy, uh, especially not too bad. It's not too bad. But um, the the translation says, Master Philip, who is the clerk of the chamber of the king, the king here, of course, being Richard. Uh, so Master Philip of the chamber of king of England made this gate to gate and when he says this he means the work of fortification from this gate to gate uh now master philip is one of richard's clerks so he is in charge of the money as it were so it's uh, it's very telling that uh we at least have you know from the archaeology standpoint you know do you believe that richard did do some rebuilding i do because we found it, we found an inscription so it's it's nice to have a tangible bit of evidence to point to so is it just the inscription that shows you that he did the rebuilding or is there anything else that that, that we can tell through archaeology that's that's the big one and of course the the written sources uh there was a sort of gargoyle uh of sorts that is a lion shape that was found um but it's found out of situ. So for those who don't know, uh, out of situ, so in situ means that it's found in place of its original placing. So out of situ, uh, it's found amongst rubble. So we don't know exactly where that came from. Did that come from fortifications? It dates to the Middle Ages. So, I mean, it's, it's possible. It's, it's of a Frankish design, as it were. But the Franks are in the Holy Land for a great amount of time. Really just the, just, just the inscription and... Um, but there is a Richard myth. Can you tell us about the Richard myth and how does that all fit in with this narrative? So there's a number of Richard myths uh, that are written. So the really, the really interesting thing is that Richard Lionheart, we always sort of think of him nowadays as this legendary, this this like amazing king. He's always associated with like Robin Hood and the movies. Um, he's just got like this presence, like, you know, this presence in our historical minds as it were. And what's really interesting is that he actually worked to build up his sort of legendary status during the middle ages. Um, so there's a lot of different uh, sort of historical sources. You have some legends uh, where he is referred to as the devil um so you have like this sort of demonic sort of presence associated with him so the that devil the king of england uh there's also other stories about the angevin dynasty so his family being descendant from the devil uh so there's sort of like that element but there's also other ones um i mean his name itself the lionheart i mean there's one there's one story that says that once he was under he was in captivity and he had to fight a lion in an arena and he reached down, grabbed the lion's heart and ate it. <laughs> which is pretty hard <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming if that's not true. I'm just going to assume no. <laughs> Other, uh, there's also another more, I would say, likely story that he got the name Lionheart because he was of, of, uh, of brave... Um, character uh that he was a good leader um of his armies good military leader uh, in that sense um and then acquired the name uh 
he's called the lion. Let's see, the, the earliest sources that refer to him as the lion, one refers to him as the lion in 1187. And then the first time that he's actually referred to as the lion heart is by Ampoise in 1191. Um, so I don't think, I don't think it's actually so not, a, not a heart eater, not a lion heart eater, basically. <laughs> Just a brain I mean, man. He had some cool meals here and there, but yeah, I don't. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> so how does this, Richard, how does this fit in with the narrative of Ascalon? So there's this battle at Jaffa and Jaffa again is located near Tel Aviv, modern day Tel Aviv. And essentially you have these chronicles that are backing up this idea that he already has this legendary status by the time uh, he's in play in the Holy Land. So basically you have the battle of Jaffa. So Richard, Richard was at Ashkelon. He, he goes up to Jaffa because Saladin's forces are uh, working to take the city. And uh, so Richard rides up to defend Jaffa. And the story is amazing from the Frankish perspective. Uh, this is how Ampoise recounts it. It says, Then did he, King Richard I, undertake a daring charge. Never was the like seen. He charged into the accursed people so that he was swallowed up by them and none of his men could see him, so that they nearly followed him breaking their ranks, and we would have lost all. But the king uh, was not troubled. He struck before and behind, creating such a pathway through the Turks. This is, of course, the translation. Uh, with the sword he was holding, that wherever it had struck, there lay either a horse or a corpse, for he cut all down. There, I believe, he struck a blow against the arm and head of an emir in steel armor, whom he sent straight to hell. With such a blow seen by the Turks, he created such a space around him that, thanks be to God, he returned without harm. However, his body, his horse, and his trappings were so covered with arrows, which that dark grace had shot at him, that he seemed like a hedgehog. So when I describe this to people, I kind of discuss like the Lord of the Rings movies where you have Sauron come with like, you know, his mace or what have you, and he's just sort of... Um, slashing uh, at people and like, you know, just sort of like waves of men are being like pushed back. And it's just, you know, this really insane story. And at the end of it, he's unharmed, but he looks like a hedgehog because he has all these arrows sticking out of him. Wow. Um, now that's the Frankish version. We do actually luckily have the other side of the story, which I think is quite rare. Um, and it's a little different, but it's quite, it's quite interesting. So now this is, again, from the life of Saladin, from Baha al-Din. Now he says, uh, now it's also uh, in this case, Baha al-Din was actually not at the battle. He is getting this secondhand, and he says so in the, in, the, in the source. So one who was present related to me, for I had moved back with the baggage train and did, did not witness this battle, thank God, because of an indisposition that the number of their cavalry was estimated at the most as 17 and at the least as nine and their foot were less than 1,000. Some said 300 and other more than that. The Sultan was greatly annoyed at this and personally went around the diversions, urging them to attack and promising them good rewards if they would. Nobody responded to his appeal apart from his son, Al-Zahir, for he got ready to charge, but the Sultan stopped him. I have heard that Al-Jannah Al-Mastub's brother said to the Sultan, your Mamluks who beat people the day Jaffa fell and took their booty from them, tell them to charge. At heart, the troops were put out by the Sultans having made terms for Jaffa since they missed their chance of booty. 
uh, booty meaning spoils of war. What followed was a direct result of this. Understanding this, the Sultan saw that to stand face to face with this insignificant detachment without taking any action was a sheer loss of face. It was reported to me that the King of England took his lance that day and galloped from the far right wing to the far left and nobody challenged him. The Frankish version is this really insane, legendary tale where he's going in and he's just slashing and, you know, killing horses with one blow and, you know, fighting back people. Um, whereas the Ayyubid tale is more that he basically ran up one, one end of the soldiers uh, and ran back the other end and nobody dared to challenge him. Yeah, no, it's very, very interesting because he's not, he's not necessarily coming back with like this sort of hedgehogian appearance, but according, according to the Muslims, nobody challenges him. So I think that speaks to his legendary persona. Do you know what? I think we need to make another film or a movie. <laughs> I think so too. Definitely. But going back to Ascalon, I mean, it doesn't end well for this city. Again, <laughs> again. <laughs> oh, no, no. It's time. <laughs> this is what, is it the third, this is the third time, isn't it? That the walls get demolished again. Or is it the second? At this point in the medieval uh, biography, in the medieval life of the city, this is the second. So what happens is, um, so the first destruction, you have Saladin destroy it because of, well, I say a fear of Richard the Lionheart, but it's more of a sort of pragmatic military fear of, okay, you know, I'm trying to keep my enemy from having um, this valuable asset. And then in the second demolition, I also argue that, you know, you, you have this instance at the Battle of Jaffa, again, located north of Ashkelon, where um, Saladin's soldiers are not engaging with Richard Lionheart. So now you've got Ashkelon, you've got these rebuilt walls. These walls, which are three quarters paid for by Richard Lionheart, are now fully associated with Richard. Uh, you, so what we have here is we have Richard and Saladin um, on September 2nd, 1192, established the Treaty of Jaffa. And this, within the treaty, it stipulates that Ashkelon's fortifications must be demolished again. So obviously they're being demolished for, again, a practical military reason. Um, but I also say that they're also being demolished because they're associated with Richard Lionheart. And like, nobody needs that. Or at least I think... That's, that's, I think, that's uh, sad. That's sad because, you know, it, it was completely de- well, not completely, it was partially demolished, then rebuilt by Richard the Lionheart, who paid, as you said, he paid to do it. Oh, and yeah. then they're demolishing it again. And it's, 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 it's also kind of one of those things, because he actually only, re- he only takes a few months to rebuild it. So there's also the question of, why bother having them demolish it again? Because they can just rebuild it again in a few months. Um, and of course, then there's also the question of when you say demolish, how much is actually demolished? Because I mean, even though it does go through subsequent rebuildings and demolishments later on mm-hmm. uh, during Holy Land Crusades, I mean, there are still significant ruins that are left. So um, what do you have evidence wise for that second demolition? Mm. So for the second demolition, we, we really just have uh, the chronicles uh, talking about the demolition of it. Yes, archaeologically speaking, it's very difficult to um, 
see, it's, it's very difficult to see in the archaeological record um, at the moment. That's, um, that's, yeah. Yeah. A little bit sucky. In a, in a, in a historical <laughs> term, it was sucky. <laughs> it was, I mean, just, just looking at it from, yeah, from an architectural point of view, it's like, oh, that was, I was having a few bad centuries. So. <laughs> so tell us what actually happens to the city of Ascalon in the end. Uh, so essentially what you have is you have the Franks and the Ayyubids come together and they're actually demolished the city together. I guess it's sort of like Saladin's like, oh, you made me destroy it the first time and I'm going to make you destroy yours the second time. <laughs> and when they, they do it together. Um, I mean, ultimately it's very teamwork, but in a... <laughs> <laughs> teamwork in such a contractual way. Like... <laughs> Do you know what? I it makes me sad listening to this because it's all of this destruction and 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 everything else. But on the plus side, it still stands though, doesn't it? Now, well, obviously parts of it still. Parts of it do. Yeah, they do. Um, so it's uh, it's a really impressive site, and uh, as I said, definitely recommend it for picnics. Um, but it's uh, let me think now. So you have some amazing parts of. Hmm, how to describe this without pictures? Ah. So essentially you have a moat, which is a moat that you think of in the traditional sense, and you have remnants of towers that run at the top of the moat with sections of walls that are left. And you have uh, a glassy, which is also called a talus. And it's basically this sort of slanted wall that makes it uh, more difficult to, to climb the walls. And it runs from the base of the moat up to the bottom of the towers to the base of the towers and the wall and what's really beautiful about the about this wall as well is that you have um uh let's see the remnants of a horseshoe tower you have other sections and interspaced uh, at the base of the wall are all these reused roman columns and they're just beautiful like they're just they're just lovely the way that they're interspersed amongst the architecture what we'll do for our listeners we'll ask amanda to send us some photos uh, of the site and we'll post them in our tweet when when we post the podcast so you'll all be able to see what's left and those of you who can go then definitely do i know it's definitely on my list of places to go when i go back to israel mm-hmm. so amazing thank you so much for joining us and uh talking us through this incredibly beautiful ancient city of ascalon and telling us about richard the Lion heart what happened with the city uh, some of the really exciting comparisons of sources because that was brilliant i love a bit of source comparison so thank you so much for joining us oh you're very welcome thanks so much for having me join us tomorrow when simon hall will be with us to talk all about his fantastic book 1956 he thinks that this year is pivotal in the history of the 20th century and i think you're going to agree after you hear him explain some of the reasons why Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.